Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petro Nerds Podcast. This is episode 62 of the Petro Nerds Podcast. I'm your host, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds, and I have a very special treat for you today. Today is Wednesday, October 19th, 2022. However, and I'll timestamp this uh, with what's going on right now really quickly, but this podcast is a, a special treat. It's part of the sort of midterm run-up um, that, and tons of information I'd like to pack into these next couple weeks coming up into the midterm elections. And so I thought it'd be great to use the panel that I was on with the Colorado Oil and Gas Association. This is a COGA panel that was, at the, it was done at the end of August. Um, it is extremely timely. It is a really, really good discussion on the state of the Colorado oil and gas market. But more important than that, it's a really honest conversation about uh, energy security and where Colorado sits in the energy security, where Colorado um, competes against states like New Mexico when we're talking about production. So it is definitely a, a very, very good panel. Um, I'm one of three on the panel. So Gabby Richmond uh, is the moderator for the panel with the Denver Petroleum Club. She's been on the podcast before with the flipperoos that we do and lots of Q&A. Um, super fun to have her on. And then the, my two fellow panelists are Andrew Haney, who's the CEO of Nickel Road Operating, a local private operator here in the DJ Basin, in the Denver Jewelsburg Basin in Colorado, and Heidi Gill with Urban Solutions, who provides sound walls and other and other solutions um, in, within the business and in the DJ particularly, but also in other businesses. Lots of, you'll learn a ton about their respective businesses in the podcast. And we have a very, or at least I have some very forthright things to say to a lot of folks in the room, which do happen to be regulators um, and folks in the room who I, the conversation is about energy security for me and where Colorado sits and where whether or not Colorado is going to start approving permits and therefore operators can actually drill these wells. So the name of the game in Colorado has been buying up your buying up your peers so that you can accrue permits. So tons of information there. Really hope you guys enjoy and take a listen. It is timestamped. We, we talk about crude oil prices and everything at the time. Um, with that being said, today is October 19, 2022. I will be talking at length about the Biden administration, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve release, um, which happened last night. I'll be talking about that in forthcoming podcasts. But just to keep you guys up to speed, um, on Wednesday, October 19, 2022, we we're seeing WTI prices despite uh, Biden's speech today and, and the announcement last night of the SP, of the SPR release. Um, we are seeing oil prices at 85 or 85.88 for WTI. We are seeing Brent around $92 hovering around there, 92.31. We're seeing Henry Hub. Really, Henry Hub has really come off those highs. We're seeing 548 for Henry Hub. We are seeing um, some LNG maintenance, and we still have Freeport, uh, the Freeport LNG facility that's out, um, and just pressure, obviously, I think, on on uh, from a recessionary standpoint on gas. We Dutch TTF has come off a massive dive just from recording the the podcast that you listen to that's coming up from the the Koga panel. I mean, August was a massive nosedive. Dutch TTF is now 32.37, um, and we're seeing though, however, the 30-year mortgage rate. I saw 7.22 today. If you were to go out and get a mortgage rate today, a mortgage today, I believe you're probably going to look at something around eight percent, um, and that that's because the 10-year yield is well north of four percent. So massive, massive craziness in terms of yields. Um, UK came out with an inflationary figure of t over 10%. So lots going on in that space. But last night, uh, the Biden administration came out and said um, they they basically reiterated plans for the, their already planned SPR release. When asked today, um, Biden was asked about whether or not this was political. And he doesn't usually do Q&A. And he said, no, it's of course, this is not political. This is just the plan all along. So he basically asked, he's, and the reason I think it obviously it's political is because it's an 80 million barrel. Uh, this is part of a 180 million barrel release. And this is 15 million barrels. So they made it a point to talk about it before midterms to try to to try to jolt the market. Um, it didn't really do anything. And the reality is, is I mean, they should have basically just said, hey, we're producing 11.8 million barrels per day. We are the largest oil and gas producer in the entire world. And this is 15 million barrels. This is, um, you know, we we consume our demand in the U.S. is 20 million barrels uh, a day. And this is 15 million barrels. So it's not even a day of consumption. Um, so it really just didn't have, I think, the, the big impact. And part of 
of that's because uh, the reason they did this is because they have not been able to do some of the things that they've actually been floating, which are export bans of diesel and um, diesel and gasoline. So I'll be talking about that lots in forthcoming podcasts. Make sure to listen to the latest podcast with Diana Scott Roth of the Heritage Foundation, where we talk about this in depth of what's going on with midterms and the Biden administration and the excellent podcast with Lou Polarisi, my former boss with the Energy Policy Research Foundation, where we also talk about all this and the OPEC cuts. So please take a listen, guys. I really hope you enjoy this, uh, this panel with Coca. Talk to you soon. Bye. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. I do want to thank our panelists, especially for joining us. We have three heavy hitters in the Colorado oil and gas industry, pretty much all of whom I'm sure need no introduction. But I'm going to give a brief intro of them regardless and then kick it off to all three of you to do a brief overview of why you're excited to talk about this topic. So I'm going to start with my panelists to my left, Tricia Curtis. Trisha is the president and CEO of PetroNerds and the host of the PetroNerds podcast. She's a macroeconomist with expertise in US shale markets, and she is globally recognized for her knowledge of US shale and has been asked to present at several forums, namely including OPEC. Prior to PetroNerds, Ms. Curtis was formerly the director of research for upstream and midstream at the Energy Policy Research Foundation in Washington, DC. Since 2010, she has led extensive research efforts and major consulting projects authored several reports on the North American upstream and midstream markets for government agencies, global think tanks, and corporations. Trisha evaluates US and North American upstream markets on a wells-up basis with a critical analysis of individual operators, assets, reservoirs, and players. Next in line, we have Andrew Haney. Andrew is the co-president and co-founder of Nickel Road Operating. He has over 20 years' experience in technical and leadership roles, oil and ga gas asset management, development engineering, and field product production optimization. At Nickel Road, Andrew has grown the upstream oil and gas producer to a significant operator position here in the DJ Basin with a robust inventory of permitted horizontal drilling locations. And our final panelist is Heidi Gill. Heidi serves as the CEO of Urban Solutions Group, she founded Urban in 2017 to bridge the gap between oil and gas development and social compatibility, based on a strong belief that you can have socially compatible oil and natural gas development near communities. Focusing on comprehensive mitigation plans and products, Heidi designed and filed a patent on a new type of sound wall that helps mitigate impacts surrounding communities during oil and gas operations. I'm sure you've seen all the sound walls if you drive up 25. <laughs> She spearheaded the capital raise for these sound walls to fund the manufacturing and now serves between 70 and 80% of the market share for this service throughout the state of Colorado. Prior to founding Urban, Heidi worked for Anadarko Petroleum, where she helped to build their mitigation program for all mitigation-related activities, with her primary focus on drilling completions and midstream. So now I'd like to invite our panelists to share a few brief sentences about why you're excited for this panel and kind of an overview. Yeah. Um, well, if you know me or you listen to the podcast, you know I'm pretty excited to talk all the time um, and pretty passionate about this business. So this panel is no different. And I would say I'm just going to highlight the last bit of this panel saying, is it economic to operate in Colorado? And I think um, it's really important to point out that there are great things in this basin. We know the geology is great. We know the rock's great. We know it's easy to drill. We know it's shallower. We know it's pretty cheap. We know the economics are good. But the real elephant is in the room is the regulatory side and the ability to get permits, um, the ability to consistently get permits, and what is, how does that translate into the go forward. So I would say, you know, what is the future of the business, right? And business, any business, doesn't matter basic economics, is you have to have stability and predictability. And that's what this state desperately needs from an oil and gas standpoint. And I'll broaden that out further and say, the production in Colorado matters a lot. It matters a lot right now, not just for Colorado and what we produce and what we consume, but for the US and the nation and the globe. And the fact that we have $81 you know, Dutch TTF prices right now, and we have nearly $10 um, MCF prices here in, in the US is a really, really big problem on natural gas side. Um, and same for oil. Obviously, oil prices are 93 bucks, but every drop that we produce in the state matters. And it really matters if you pull it back even further and you sort of look at the trajectory of where Cal California is at and the steady decline in production that they've had over the last several years. And we're not, unless something, you know, we get some stability and predictability and we actually have permits and people can consistently do this and 
people feel comfortable in the state, that's what's going on in the state. And I'm sure we will get into a lot of that, but I will leave it there and throw it to the rest of my panelists. So I am pumped. <laughs> it's going to be hard to match your energy today, Tricia, but I'm going to try. Um, when I first heard the uh, topic for this panel, my first initial reaction was, when has the DJ been uneconomic? Um, but as an operator, uh, the reality is over the last four years, we've undergone a lot of transformation. Uh, when you look at the introduction of Prop 112 and the eventual regulatory and over uh, environmental overhaul that came with SB 181, uh, the DJ's really been shaken up. Um, and the question now really is, where do we go from here? Uh, the impact that we felt has been across the board. It's been investor sentiment. It's been rig count. It's been approved permit inventory. It's been overall production levels, and even down to M&A activity. Um, and I think the other important thing to note is the impact hasn't been uniform. You know, now more than ever, there's a lot of contrast. There's contrast in terms of operator scale, operator's geography, the age of its production, um, and those those contrasts are very important to understand. Um, the other thing that I would say is, you know, underpin these DJ dynamics with the macro picture that we have right now. Uh, I'm sure Trish is going to tell us a lot about that. Um, the reality is uh, we have a macro that is full of volatility, inflationary pressure. Um, the European energy crisis that's unfolding in real time, it's, it's giving everybody a realization about how critical a role oil and gas development plays and, and needs to continue to play. And as the uh, push for and the momentum for higher operating standards continues to increase, uh, we need to be mindful that we don't neglect our economy and our energy security. So for all of those reasons, um, I think this is a very important topic, and I think it's time we recalibrate our perspective a bit on the DJ Basin and what that may portend for American oil and gas production. Excellent. Thanks, Andy. Heidi Gill, founder and CEO of Urban. Uh, really excited to be here. want to thank Koga for hosting. I'm excited that it's in person and getting to see a lot of people that we haven't seen before, which is great. Um, you know, I think both Trisha and Andy did a great job framing up similar things that I would have said now. So I think um, in order to get to a more lively discussion, what I will say is, you know, coming from having been, you know, working for, at the time, the largest operator in the state, when these newer services um, are coming out that a lot of the regulations now are requiring 100% um, of the time, you know, having gone through that from the operator side, then having gone to the vendor side, and then having raised capital and having investors and shareholders that are interested, obviously, in our company and thriving in this environment, think I'll bring an interesting perspective, you know, having sat in those, those individual buckets. But, um, you know, Urban is a company that makes technical decisions through a social lens. And so while we are predominantly an oil field service company, we now do a lot of our services in crypto and renewables throughout the country. And so the issues that we're going to be talking about here and part of what makes the DJ economic is obviously we have increased regulation and with that comes increased cost. Um, but I will just say to the group, you know, People want access to everything with none of the impacts. And that is consistent inside and outside of oil and gas. And it doesn't matter if you're in California, Colorado, North Carolina. So we're seeing similar trends in opposition against business um, across the board. And as urban is broadening where we serve and where we help, I think that regulation and business is going to continue to be at the forefront of every conversation in every industry. And so I think it's really critical that we're having these conversations that look at not just the economics, because to Andy's point, the DJ has great economics. But again, a lot of this is going to go back to the regulatory and political certainty we need to make investments. And that's just not even investment from, you know, you have money and you want to put it in a deal, but investments to keep people living in the state that can then stay and run these companies that we need to in these robust regulatory environments. So I'm really excited for the discussion today. Awesome. Thanks, Heidi. And I'm really excited about these panelists because they come from a variety of point of views, which you could probably already tell from their bios and brief overviews. You know, we have Trisha here from Market Analytics and a macro perspective, and Andy has a wonderful perspective as a private operator, also has a bit more freedom to speak than a public operator, <laughs> uh, and Heidi from the service provider perspective also speaking on behalf of some of her customers, perhaps. So with going to get started, I do want to remind everyone we are taking audience questions today, and we encourage you to ask questions. So if you have any, you have white note cards on the center of your table. Just write down your question and wave it in the air, and someone from Koga will come by and, and pass it along to us. 
So to start off, uh, I'm going to steal this idea from the Petro Nerds podcast and lay some groundwork in terms of commodity prices and where they're at as of roughly 2 p.m. today. Trisha kind of stole my thunder a little bit earlier. <laughs> You're okay. uh, but we have WTI at about $93.67. Brent is just over $100 at $123. Henry have natural gas at $9.29. Dutch TTF around $82, between $81 and $82. So in that same kind of fundamental market commodity analysis, we're going to turn to Trisha first. And Andy and Heidi, please jump in with your comments on this as well. Can you, Tricia, speak to DJ Basin, break-evens, full-cycle economics? For anyone in the room who may not be aware or up-to-date with the current market research, where does it sit and what are you seeing? Um, so I would say echo what I, I said in the beginning and what Andrew has said and, and also Heidi is the DJ from an economic perspective from a full cycle, whether it's full cycle, quarter cycle, half cycle, and we don't have to go in between them. Like when people say, what's the break even? I frankly, I don't love the, I don't really love discussing break evens because there's a lot of other, you know, what are our metrics? Break evens are good. If prices drop down to $60 a barrel, you know, yes, people are going to feel pain, but it's not as though the DJ doesn't break under into, you know, break it even in the 40s. So I think my panelists would probably agree that 40s are a comfortable number. There's tons of, tons of metrics from Inverse to JP Morgan. You name it, unbreak even. So from a break even perspective, the DJ is just fine. But nobody, and I would say nobody in this room, nobody in the business, looks at the DJ from a purely break even perspective. And that's where the honesty of this conversation really has to come in of it's more than just um, pure, pure economics. And as Heidi pointed out, that regulatory uncertainty, and even as uh, Bart Bookman was saying up on stage, in the prior panels, that's a lot of money that they had to invest from a regulatory perspective just to get the people to actually do the permitting and do all of that. And that's really important for people to realize um, that that all has a trickling impact. Um, and companies are working their asses off, sorry, working their butts off um, in this state to really to get permits um, and to do business. And that, that's something that has to be appreciated in the, 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 all the good but the difficulties of, of doing business in the state. Absolutely. Andy, Heidi, do you have any additional comments? Yeah. I would just say, yeah, I, I agree. I think the economics and the DJ are robust. I think it matters where you're at. I think the zip code matters a great deal. Um, we'll probably talk more about that. I think um, the other thing that's very attractive about the DJ is capital efficiency. I think uh, most people don't think about that we don't have the same kind of service cost pressure that you feel in other basins. Um, I think that uh, what we've been able to demonstrate, for example, for Nickel Road, we've done 21 uh, horizontal wells in the last three years, and we've been able to recycle cash within nine to 17 months. Huh. So, you know, when you get that kind of return on cash, it's, it, is, it is something that uh, investors are taking a hard look at. Um, we have a very um, intense non-op market in the DJ right now. Um, one of the reasons for that is, is investors are looking at it and saying, hey, I don't want to take that risk, that surface risk, but, I, but if you have a permit, you have a rig, and you have some steel, I know the returns are there and I want to be there. Um, so, so I think the DJ has a lot of things going for it. But again, the contrast is very stark. Yeah. I think great points. Um, just to elaborate on that a little bit, I think that you know when I went to go round up money to, to start Urban, it was in 2017, 2018, and you had investors that were, you know, to find an investor that's willing to invest in socially contentious oil and gas investments is challenging on its own. Um, I would say that if I was in this market right now, um, while we have, you know, our investors are very happy and we have others that are, you know, want to make capital infusions into urban to see us scale and grow, um, we are holding back on some of that, which we'll get into here in a little bit. Um, but right now, it would be much more challenging to raise capital in this environment. Um, with the regulatory uncertainty. So I think you guys made great points, but I think that when you look at funding this, you have to look at also, um, you know, we might be starting to see some movements on the permitting side, but it's gonna take some, some sufficient uh, progress there, I would say. Um, but again, going back to the economics, the economics are here. It's again, the political uncertainty and risk. And let's dig into that political and regulatory uncertainty. What would you like to see from regulators, Heidi, if you, could speak to all of them in a room today. Yes, hello. <laughs> um, uh, I think what we, you know, is I can speak on behalf of my company, I can definitely speak on behalf of my customers, and I can speak on behalf of my investors. We need to see consistent permit approval coming out of the COGCC and counties. 
And when I say consistent, I'm also talking consistent in proximity to homes. So I have a few statistics here. I looked at this this morning and was actually pretty surprised. Um, so I think that everybody remembers the glorious Prop 112. I'm kidding, because it was like PTSD for most of us. It was a really stressful time. Um, so Prop 112 was basically a ballot initiative that said it, oil and gas development couldn't be within 2,500 feet of a home. Um, I believe at the time, our historic development, it was something like 88% of our historic development had a home within 2,500 feet. And then looking forward, it was 54% of the acreage available in our state um, that would have been basically off limits if Prop 112 had passed. Voters voted that down and said that was not the right fit for Colorado. Um, and then we had something passed legislatively, which you know led to SB 181. And now we have this 2,000-foot number. So right now, um, majority of the permits that are being approved are outside of that 2,000 feet. And I pulled just a few stats here. Um, so in 2021, it looks like we had 53 two-ways, and a two-way is a, uh, it's a service location where you are able to come in and, and do a new operation. Um, 44 of those were approved before January 15th, and then after um, everything was passed, it, it was only eight two-ways were approved, and of those eight, only three of them had homes within 2,000 feet, so that's roughly 15%. So, you know, we know we had the regulatory, um, you know, we went through all of the regulatory and the rule, rulemaking, um, and now I believe, you know, the panel did a great job talking about that we now have the regulations, we're getting the guidance documents from the state, and we're starting to see things move, which is a positive thing. Um, but right now, you know, we've had 34 new locations approved, and of those 34, only seven of them, so 15, or excuse me, a little less than 20%, have had homes within 2,000 feet. So we are essentially almost living if Prop 112 had passed. So when I say that we need to get permit approvals coming out consistently from the state, I'm talking about permit approvals that are gonna make this state great for development, not for the next year or two years, but for the next decade when we talk about investment coming back here in the way that it was um, in a really meaningful way. Um, I do want to um, you know, say that we are seeing movement on the regulatory side. I think I want to give huge kudos to the COGCC and PDC for their Kenosha OGDP, which is their oil and gas development pad. They had three, uh, three pads that had, I think it was 25 to 30 homes within proximity to those pads within 2,000 feet. And I think that is, that is a win. That is something that my investors and I looked at and we said, okay, things are trending in the right direction. So I think we still have a really long way to go. Um, I, I won't get into this now. I do have a lot of issues with the 2,000 foot number. It's not coming from a data science. I think it is a politically driven number. And I think that that is something that I hope you know, regulators take into account as we begin to look more and more at processing permits that allow our state to be open. Right? If we knew that for Prop 112, taking 54% of our state off of the market was going to be a really bad thing, we need to make sure that that doesn't happen through SB 181 and the regulations that are there. The framework exists to get permits approved through caps and also through waivers, so, so it's in there, and the regulators are saying that we are open for business, but for us to make a meaningful investment back in the state, we want to see consistent permit approvals where you have homes within 2,000 feet. And the last comment I will make is we are an entire company that is based on, you know, I founded this company because I believe so passionately that people have protections with their homes and their communities, but I am very pro oil and gas development in the US. And so we have to figure out a way to coexist, but you can have a location that is within 2,000 feet that is more protective than a location that's in 3,000 feet. It comes down to proper planning and the use of innovative tools and technologies. So we can do it, but right now what we need to see is the consistent approval of those locations. Yeah, that's a great point. Andy. What I would add to that, I would just say, I think uh, you know, one thing we do really, really well in this industry is gathering data, analyzing data, um, I think, you know, with the new regulation, all this new reporting, we're, we're getting a lot of information. We're gathering it quickly. I just would like to, to hope that we can work together with industry and the agencies to use that information to our benefit, to accomplish our objectives. Um, so it's not a, dr a number maybe driven by politics as much as it is something that the data shows it's something that can be accomplished. And I would push it a little bit further and go beyond and talk about another elephant in the room, and that's just where the state is on oil and gas and being pro-oil and gas and energy and understanding like and where the country is. And I would say that I, I was in London at a Chatham House event 
2017, and I saw the, the chief economist of the International Energy Agency talking about Colorado to a, a group of foreigners, to largely a Middle East contingent group, talking about how stringent the emission standards were in Colorado. Colorado has some of the highest emission standards, even poor, before all this and before SB 181. So Colorado has a pretty stringent regulatory environment and a pretty efficient environment in, to, to work with for oil and gas. So all the co companies sort of like did this stuff already, right? And then every time something gets pushed down the pipeline, and that's why Proposition 112 was enough, even though it was defeated, that was really hard for an investor to sort of swallow of thinking, well, is this going to come back later? And then obviously you have SB 181. I mean, right after Proposition 112, Polis gave an interview on Nine News and made it pretty clear to everyone where he sort of stood on oil and gas. And it wasn't very positive. And so I, ha I think it's really important to realize is that as a state, too, however you feel about energy, it's, it's really, really critical now from an energy security standpoint, and Colorado plays a critical role in that. Um, so it's just a reality check of sort of, if you have a regulatory environment or of a state and where it's trending that doesn't want oil and gas, that has to be recognized. Of it, are we trending in the right direction? Are we actually going to get some movement? And that's really important for all companies in the state, whether you're an upstream producer or you're a service company, and it's really critical to keep the jobs because the service companies have to know that the, the companies are going to get permits because they have to know to be there. Um, and that's why it gets really competitive to Andrew's point, whether you have a frack company, you need to be fracking these wells right now. Um, that's great. But I mean, you need to also know that two years from now, you're going to be able to get that frack company to frack those wells. And that's really important. And this all means revenue and it all means jobs for Colorado. Um, and I think that's, that's also really important to take into account. And this is already a pretty difficult business in that it's a volatile business. It's a commodity-based business. So in addition to just navigating prices and global cycles and everything going on in oil and gas, you add this into it and it's a lot. Um, so it makes Colorado sort of a, a very unique environment to do business. I'm not saying you can't. Um, and I mean, we see it in the Middle East in, in terms of companies who do a great job and are very comfortable in this, and you can do business. But it would sure be helpful um, to have a nice, uh, a clear trajectory um, of saying, we do like oil and gas, and we are open for business. Yeah, and I really liked your comments about keeping service providers in business, because if we think it's bad now, if we don't support our service providers and help them and make sure that they get through this time as well, uh, we're going to be in a tighter pinch going forward. So speaking of service providers, Heidi, I want to kick it back to you and ask you kind of a cheeky question, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, some could say, based on Urban's mission, that you might benefit from Senate Bill 181 and some of the new regulations, and it could be in your financial and economic favor. What would you say to people who come at you with that argument? Like Great me. question, completely fair, and I get it probably every week. Um, so I would say that there is no gravy train for vendors out there. And some people will come up and they're like, hey, so this must be pretty good for you. I'm like, in what world do you think this is good for me? Um, an example of that is if you were to have, say, say pre-SB 181, the COGCC processed 100, I'm just doing round numbers, 100 new permits. And say, of those 100 new permits, 50% of them required our service. Now, post-SB 181, say the COGCC only approves 50 permits, and they need 100% of our service on those. We didn't change anything from the revenue that's coming to our company, but what did change, um, and there's, there's quite a few things that did change, is number one, the political and uncertainty and risk here for our investors. We are being asked to go to different states. A lot of vendors are leaving where they know that they are gonna have an administration that consistently approves permits or you know, at a state level. Um, you have consolidation of customers. So when you used to have a potential, you know, our, our, our market opportunity has shrunk substantially. So when you used to be able to have 10 customers, now you have five. Um, you know, I think that, again, people are like, oh, you guys must be capitalizing on these great prices. That's not the reality. Again, I, if someone can show me where this gravy train is, I would really appreciate <laughs> it. I have not found it. Um, scoured the state, have not found it yet. But really, you know, in, in 2017, when I started the business, we were a startup, we were starting out. And, you know, service companies were still rebounding from 15 and 16. And then, you know, 2019, it was like, okay, we're finally getting there. And then COVID hit. We lost 79% of our revenue when COVID hit. I mean, that is a, a massive, massive loss for us as a company. Um, and so then even when you look at the markets now, 
op or vendors aren't coming in and capitalizing on high oil prices. We're still trying to come in and rebuild from actually what happened during COVID. And then we're also having to look at our investors and make cases for why we're gonna continue to make investments here. Um, so really it, it, it is something that um, I think it's a valid question. Uh, we'll give one more example. If we had a particular service that was not required in the old regulations, but sometimes operators needed to do it. Now, post SB 181, it is 100% required. We didn't take the unit of what we charge for that and say, yep, we're gonna charge that here and everything's off to the races. We basically looked at it and said, okay, this is a, a large you know, economic impact to these wells and the operators. So we have to look at the fundamental investment. We have to retrain, like, rechange the, uh, you know, the payout of our assets and we need to come down on price and make it more affordable for operators because this is now something that's required 100% of the time. So what I will say that I do think um, the, the, the only positive that I can say right now um, about the service company is that, or service company in this environment, is with the regulations, this basin is gonna be few operators and even fewer vendors that stick around. Um, we are a service company that is very tied to this basin, but what is happening here is spreading to other states, and we are getting asked to move our fleet outside of the state. I won't do that at this point because I have too much faith that the COGCC is going to start processing permits and that we are open for business. Um, what we are seeing are really unconventional partnerships. And by unconventional, um, you know, great example, was when, when COVID hit and everything, you know, just the, our, everyone's world shattered um, in, in the oil and gas space, um, we made a really unconventional partnership with Bayswater. They were the only operator that continued to go and um, that partnership helped both of our companies substantially be able to emerge, not just from COVID, but as we knew the regulatory environment would be changing. Um, we're seeing, you know, it used to be where vendors fight for, you know, fight for a pad. If someone asks us to bid on a pad, we don't even really bid on a pad. We bid on drilling programs. We are going to be, we are going to put our fleet and put our services with the few operators that are willing to commit to us the same way we're willing to commit to them. So I think that this basin, what is going to make us successful with these really robust regulations is going to be the partnership with vendors. Um, and you know, we made during COVID, we made a huge investment um, for a company our size when we had lost everything, and we invested in a cloud-based technology that is specific for post SB 181 oil and gas development. And so, not only does it do your regulatory and your compliance, but it helps massively with the social component of your operations and the notifications and the potential waivers and the communication with the community. And so it really took that to the next level. And we made that investment even though we had lost everything, but it was because we had really strong confidence um, in our partnerships. You know, PEC is bringing forward a massively sizable cap. I think it's 5,200 square, square acres. It has, um, you know, roughly could be up to 466 wells and it has, you know, 5,900 homes surrounding all the potential of those pads. That's a large development, and that's the development that we need to see. And then, you know, working with us and saying, okay, here's what we need to be able to demonstrate to regulators on how we really engage the community on top of all of the other compliance components. You know, we are really excited to be supporting them with that effort, and we're going to give everything we have, but we have to see the consistent approvals um, coming out. But I think the unconventional partnerships are, are how we're going to get there, and we're going to be able to show regulators that we can live within these regulations. And so I just want to circle back to something that was a powerful point to me in your comments. You actually changed your business model to help shoulder the financial burden following the impacts of Senate Bill 181 to work in partnership with your customers. Yep, we did. So again, if something that operators had to do occasionally, they have to do now, we are sharing in that. So it's, again, not a gravy train, it's a partnership, and we're trying to really share in those burdens um, because they do, you know, a sound wall is never going to make it uneconomic in the DJ, um, but all of those things do add up. And so we, you know, I have a heightened, sensitive, heightened sensi sensitivity to it as I was an operator, um, and I know that um, budgeting for all this stuff is critical, but we all have the regulations now. Everybody should be able to budget what needs to go into these wells. Um, but yeah, I mean, we really looked at it as like our, our responsibility for what we provide to this basin was to work with operators unconventionally. And, and we are seeing the reciprocation from several, which, which is great. That's great. And you talked a lot about talking to your investors and 
you know, Andy, I'm sure you have these same pain points as well. How often when you are speaking to your investors is the regulatory environment the number one thing that comes up? You know, when you tackle those conversations, either one of you, or maybe we can turn to Tricia from a more macro perspective, is that the number one concern? Let's just get it out. Every time. Okay. Every time. I think uh, Ditto. Every part, time. part of the reason our investors got comfortable is because we have a team that's pretty much evolved over the last 12 to 15 years with the system. But, you know, um, so it's a very important part of it. And if we didn't have that team, I don't think, I think it'd be a more of a challenge. But I, not everybody has it. I do think what it does is it presents a significant barrier to entry mm -hmm. and what otherwise might be a very healthy, you know, cycle of new people coming into the base. And I certainly hope we get back to that place. And we heard that on the previous panel, that investment has shifted away from the state. And I don't think that will be news to anyone here in the industry. But you know, I do want to ask, what are the broader impacts of that divestiture from an investment perspective? Tricia, can you speak to the follow-on effects if we continue to lose investment to the state of Colorado in oil and gas, what that might look like? Yeah, I mean, I think both. Um Andrew and Heidi have pointed out, I mean, we have seen lost investment, right? And you have seen companies that can work in here and are working in this basin. So you will continue to see that. But as things then now, I mean, obviously, the massive acquisitions that we have in the state are about consolidation and are largely about buying permits because look at a chart of permit approvals and it goes like this and it declines because we simply don't have abundant permit approval. And that is the single biggest thing. So when an investor, I mean, if I'm in New York, if I'm in abroad, if I'm anywhere, and people are talking about, you know, basins in Colorado, it's something that it just, it makes them, uh, it makes them uncomfortable because they have to compete for capital. And so when we're talking about for break-evens and elsewhere, there's plenty of, there, yes, it's harder to get in. Um, but as, as prices are strong, I mean, natural gas prices are high, oil prices are high. I mean, energy looks a lot different now um, for many of us who understood how the energy works and, and um, are a little more highly skeptical of the energy transition. Um, this business is going to be around here for a long, long, long time, way longer than any projections you see have. Coal will be around for a long time, natural gas, and oil. Um, so everything's going to be around for a long time, and the ability for folks to sort of wrestle with that, we haven't sort of had that probably deep conversation in Colorado, is that not only the country will need it, the world will sort of need it and be consuming it, and sort of where Colorado's role in it. Um, and I think the impact over time, if you're to sort of see the trajectory, I mean, California is a pretty good example of just seeing overall production declines. I mean, they're roughly half or a little, a little over half of what they were in sort of 2008. So California produces about 340,000 barrels per day. Now they were 600,000 barrels per day in 2008. They've just had a steady decline. And that is, you know, there's a, a lot of anti-oil and gas movement and, and, you know, policies within California. And I know that sometimes people in the industry might be thinking we're paying lip service that. It's really serious. I mean, I study this on a state level and all on a macro level. And the anti-oil and gas movement, the ESG pressure, the green policies, I mean, we can see them like case in point of what's happening in Europe today. That is a result of a, a steady production decline um, in Europe because they didn't produce their own natural gas. Um, and then the, they brought that production in from, uh, from Russia without changing their consumption patterns. And we are sort of on that path in Colorado where we're, we're comfortable declining our own production and importing it from elsewhere. California is doing that as well, and California has some serious issues from a grid standpoint. And so it, the policies and where the states matters, I know I feel like I'm, I'm beating a dead horse here, but it really does matter because those policies eventually catch up to you. And so if we bring this back to just investment and how that investment pulls away from the state, um, that also translates into jobs, and that translates into business um, and how companies feel comfortable. And I would say that where utility providers are at in Colorado should matter. If I'm, if I'm in oil and gas, I should be looking at where the state is on utilities as well because utility providers don't seem very comfortable with natural gas, and they're really trying to move out of that as quickly as possible, even though the emissions, you know, the reduction is very minimal at best. Um, and so that it all adds up, and it's all really meaningful um, as a state into where our trajectory. And it means that, as a business standpoint, people look at Colorado and they see it as less investable and less approachable. And even though, yes, they have federal land in Wyoming, a lot of folks might want to put their and and more geologic risk and numbers of different things. We could get into the powder all day long, uh, but they may want to put those dollars there, or they may want to put it in North Dakota. And that's why you've seen so much competition in other basins. For you hear tons of PVAC companies and and 
four engineers starting a company that want to get into the Eagle Ford or elsewhere. And you've seen, we've seen the acquisitions as of late of companies buying up assets because, because of that. You don't hear quite as much. Yes, we've had the consolidation in the DJ, but it's just a little different. And so unless there's a pivot and a change that obviously needs to happen, you know, Colorado's on that path to that continually declining. And that's really sad for everyone in this room, but for just the state as a whole and the future of, of a revenue side as well. Yeah, and you talked about other basins, and I'm always frustrated when I go to conferences and I hear people, and they never talk about DJ, right? It's like Permian, you know, Haynesville, great. Uh, but so, but I, when we were learning about this panel, that's why I was so excited, because I do think we need to talk more about DJ. But for maybe some of those investors or operators, Andy, who, who aren't in the DJ, why, why should they care from your personal perspective about investment fleeing the state and these changes in regulations? Well, that's a great question. I think, I mean, we're a laboratory. Um, a lot of eyes are on Colorado um, in terms of how we navigate this. I mean, to, to echo some of what Heidi said, I mean, we kind of got hit with a compound effect. We had the pandemic. We had these comprehensive regulations. We had a, 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 a lowering of investor sentiment. All of that led to an overall decline in oil production. We're down about 24% now since our peak in the fourth quarter of 2019. That's a big deal. And that that moves downstream, right? That moves down into yeah. jobs, it moves down into severance taxes, and it moves down into how we fund things like education in this state. Um, so that's a, that's a big deal, and, and, and where we go from here, uh, we just have to be mindful of that. Um, I think uh, the cost is real, and I think people realize that. It impacts people differently. We talked about that a little bit. Um, you know, if you have operator one over here, um, that's in a more rural part of the basin, doesn't have uh, a lot of legacy PDP wells and maybe has a more favorable county. Uh, that's a different situation from somebody who is in a urban environment, somebody is in a county that maybe is less open-minded on oil and gas development and in a place where they have a lot of legacy PDP production. So the costs are different. Um, for operator two, you're gonna find a lot more that needs to be done in terms of flow assurance requirements, mm -hmm. some of the new rulemaking. You're gonna find um, things that happen in terms of permitted fairway, having that real running room to be able to make decisions to bring vendors in for longer-term contracts, have a healthy uh, vendor environment, uh, per permit delays, having timelines uh, that are longer and delays on bringing production forward on projects. Uh, those things are real. Um, and I think, you know, as, as we think about it going forward, let's talk about some of those statistics. You mentioned some. I did some research as well on the DJ statistics. Um, when you look at what has happened since the new rules kicked in, um, in the last 19 months, we've submitted 34 OGDPs. We've had 14 approved in the DJ, 180 Form 2s approved. Uh, so I know we have some of the OGDPs that encompass more wells or some of the CAPs that encompass, uh, encompass more locations. But in terms of actual Form 2s, 180. We have 17 rigs in the DJ right now running. And these uh, wells, these extended reach laterals, uh, a lot of the technology and innovation that was talked about on the first panel is real. Uh, we're getting these wells drilled in, in a week now, which means a rig can chew through 50 wells in a year. Uh, 17 rigs, it's 850 locations. Um, we don't have a lot of running room. If you look at what's been approved, that's a 13% permit replenishment rate. I don't think that's sustainable. I think we have to find a way to work with the regulators to improve that. Um, hopefully that will improve. I think more recently here in the last few months, we have seen that tick up. And I think that's encouraging, and I really hope that trend continues. And I think hopefully as expectation setting and communication with regulators gets more, gets to a point where it improves, we can get to a place where that can be done more efficiently. Uh, because to your point, I think we need, we need the running room. I think all great points. Just to, to close out, you know, my concern when we look at stuff, again, it's not about, I mean, I do have a concern about 2023 and 2024, but when you're talking about investors and, and pitching a deal to someone, you have to have confidence that you have that runway that Andy's talking about, and right now the numbers just aren't there. Again, I want to do a huge shout out to our fellow, regulator, uh, fellow regulators. You guys have an extremely challenging job ahead of you as you navigate the regulations. And I think that you know, seeing some of the collaboration between operators and, um, and the regulators has been great. I think we're starting to see meaningful things. Um, in progress in that area, I think that, you know, again, my concern is, I think that, that my investors were already an anomaly. They were a small set of people that, you know, we have probably 30 individuals or entities, 30, 35 that are, that are in our deal. 
they were people that were willing to make an investment in this space, which is already more than some of the folks that maybe Andy's talking about that want just the non-op position where they're like, we've got a permit, we've got steel, we can go, right? Yeah. So those are two different types of investors when you're looking at it. But, um, and, and you know, we are obviously private and I retained a lot of control with, with the company. And so a lot of the decisions are really based on, um, you know, they're, they're, they're like, we invested in you, it's, you, need to, you need to make the decision. Um, and so, again, going back to the concerns with the permits that have been approved, are those more rural ones? And we're just, we're getting through all those and we're not gonna have enough. So operators and regulators need to get comfortable with being able to permit and process and go through the, uh, you know, the regulatory environment for what it is. And then we need to execute and we need to execute in a way that's responsible to our communities and responsible to the regulations. Um, to just go off of what Bart was saying is Bart on the panel before, I thought they did a great job talking about the technological innovations that our industry has seen. Um, and he talked about us, you know, that we're going to have the cleanest production here. It's not just that we're going to have the cleanest production here, it's that we're going to have the most socially compatible production here. The regulations have an exorbitant amount of community engagement and notification to make sure that that is an open communication channel. And that's how we're going to learn as an industry and be able to navigate this. But the regulatory environment's in place. Yes, we're seeing the movement. We just need to see a lot more movement before we continue to make, you know, you're talking about millions or hundreds of millions of dollars investment in the state. And if you're looking at it from an environmental standpoint and you really, you know, are, you know, a large, you know, concerned with climate change, um, we should be doing it here. We're going to do it here the cleanest. And we, I think everyone agrees we don't want to be California. They are in a terrible spot with the regulations that they've passed. Um, and so if we really want to tackle climate change, we need to get cleaner fuel sources uh, to other countries. We need to, to really, uh, as the U.S., stand, you know, step up in that space. And to Trisha's point, Colorado has to play a critical role in not just the energy that we're going to use for our country, but the energy that we need to use globally to reach those goals. That's how we're going to have meaningful environmental change. And I would just like to add, just from an investment standpoint, if we compare Colorado to New Mexico, because, I mean, the vast majority of production, and I love the, the stats that they gave because I'm a nerd person all around, but all the production, most of the production in Colorado in the, is coming from the DJ, and it's coming from Weld County. And Weld County absolutely wholeheartedly voted down Prop 112. So if I'm a resident of Weld County, by and large, I'm probably not happy with the situation. And the problem is the permit side translates into well completions. And at $93 oil, at $100 oil we've seen, you should be putting the drill bit back in the ground and drilling. You will regret it in the future by not doing this. And you have all these things in, in the oil environment that's hard. It's inflation, it's getting people, it's pipe, it's sand. And then in addition in Colorado, it's that permit and that runway that Andrew's talking about is that we haven't seen well completions, the hor like actually completing the wells and bring them online. We have not seen that come back in Colorado. And that translates into production, that translates into business. And that's where you, know, you have to, as the service provider, you have to know that's coming. So we can talk about permits all day long, but we have to actually be able to drill and complete the wells and do it. And New Mexico, for example, I mean, 375,000 barrels a day is roughly coming out of Weld County alone. That's a lot of production for a single county in the US. But New Mexico is at 1.5 million barrels a day for the state, and that is from two counties alone, Lee and Eddy County, some of the best rock in the entire world. It's fantastic. And they had regulatory issues, obviously, with federal permits. And you saw companies stack up and build up those permits. And permits were a huge deal. But they've largely been able to navigate it. And it's, a, it's an example of sort of navigating through that. Um, and this state needs to take a lot of lessons from that, of that when things get competitive, and especially if oil prices were to decline, things get more competitive and you have to even be more cognizant of all these issues that we're talking about. Um, and it's just, the, that's why um, it matters. And when you were at the Doug Rockies conference back in June, you said something that came out on your podcast yesterday that kind of pinged to me about production not coming back online in the Rockies and you just now again mentioned it. And you attested it to private companies and ESG investor pressure and that private companies Aren't, aren't drilling in the same way that they were, and private companies are now capitalizing on that. Could you expand a bit more on that and why you feel that way? Yeah, I mean, I definitely have a, a much bolder, probably, stance on ESG than most. Um, and I, I do link ESG and investor pressure a lot together, sort of the movement we've seen through COVID, where we saw a lot of green policies and agendas and Biden's win and you know signing of the Paris Climate Accords and every company saying, I heart ESG and I heart net zero and everybody signing on to this net zero stuff. And so we've had this wave of 
of sort of this, this sentiment. Obviously, that part of that shareholder returns, companies, shareholders need to make money, but also part of it is ESG, and it's the pressure that companies feel to, to have to cater to that. Um, and sort of this anti-oil and gas movement that's in there. And I do want to clarify the inability to invest versus underinvestment, which I do think that's extremely critical. But when we talk about public and private, I mean, if you look at where private operators from a completion standpoint and from just the wells that they're drilling, they're eating public's lunch because private operators have far more flexibility. But the problem is in the Rockies, we've been sort of dominated historically by public operators. And so it sucked that as things have returned up and we have $100 oil, we haven't seen the activity come back because the publics have decided that they are far more interested in um, this other stuff I'm mentioning. I'm, not, I'm being critical of it and, and being a little cheeky because it, it's important to realize is that when you're putting, um, you know, we have the price signals, and I wouldn't say, you know, Ed, every time you just throw your capital in and you drill it, but it is really important that public companies realize there's a lot of money at the table. And so that public investor pressure, that ESG pressure, has certainly impacted public's willingness to sort of go and do the drill, baby drill. And the privates are off to the races. I mean, you can see, by and large, and we have more private companies drilling now than we did pre-COVID. We have more private rigs drilling now than we did pre-COVID, but it's just less and more sprinkled throughout the Rockies. And so we see a ton of that, obviously, in the Permian, the Eagleford, and places where it's, it's slightly more favorable and little. Just there's a lot of historical context to that. But it is really meaningful, and it does come back, which we can get into in a point of the underinvestment versus the inability to invest. Yeah, and Andy, you're a private operator in the state, so I would appreciate your input on this as Trish is talking about this. I think, I think the answer is, in general, private companies probably can pick up more of that activity than, than maybe publics have the luxury. Plus, there's also the issue of just kind of getting away from the growth model uh, in our industry that's, that's been over the last five years. Um, I think, in general, uh, it comes with caveats, though. I think private operators, one, you got to have the fairway. There's a finite amount of permits out there, so you got to have that. Two, you've got to be able to execute. I mean, it's not for the faint of heart to, to, do, to meet these standards in the state. It's doable, it's tough, and, but you have to be committed, and, and there are private operators that are doing a great job. Um, and then last thing is, you know, you have to have the, uh, the, the focus, and I think that's probably the difference, is, is the public companies are probably trying to take on a, a lot right now in terms of expectations of their role in the, in, in, in the ESG movement. Um, as a private operator, we have the luxury to kind of focus on our part of it. We're, we're, not, we're very clear about what we can and what we, we're not going to do. But for our part of it, you know, drilling and completing wells in the DJ, we can really uh, focus and we can get, get that down to a fine science and make sure that we're adhering to the regulations. I think in general, I mean, public health, safety, welfare, environment, wildlife, yes, every, I don't know anybody that doesn't want to do right by those things. Yeah. But I also want to say is I think oil and gas development contributes to public health, safety, and welfare. And I think it's us working together to, to find that solution. Absolutely. Well, I just want to be cognizant of time. Does anyone in the audience have any questions? From Koga? I've got a couple more, so I can keep going. No? OK. Uh, so you briefly touched on it, Andy. But in terms of capital efficiency in the basin, can you speak to why Colorado is the best in the country and what you've seen from Nickel Road? Yeah, I think, I think all, a lot of operators, there's a lot of really solid operators in the DJ. Those that are operating and active right now, I mean, they've been through the paces. Yeah. These are quality operators, by and large, lion's share, right? I know we've had some bad headlines about a couple of uh, outliers, but the reality is these companies have worked really, really hard to, to get better technologically, to get better at health and safety, um, to bring in new pieces of equipment, We've been monitoring uh, with a lot of the new regulations, our air quality, water quality. Um, these people are committed and bought in. And I think uh, a lot of just that whole stance towards innovation and technology has also uh, benefited the economics uh, of, of these operators. And so, yeah, the return on cash is pretty attractive right now in the DJ. Uh, if there were more locations, I think there'd be more investment. Um, you know, I, I think the last thing I would say on that is I think uh, it's not just reserved to the small operators either. I think. PDC has been very open about how much on the front foot they feel about the DJ, and we're very encouraged to hear that as well. So. Absolutely. Any other thoughts, Tricia? Heidi? No. So, Heidi, again, you kind of briefly touched on it, but I want to circle back. What could operators be doing in the pre-planning pre process to make sure that they're budgeting appropriately for these costs associated following Senate Bill 181 and the new regulations? What have you seen? 
Yeah, I would say that anyone that says that these are you know, surprise costs, they are not surprise costs anymore. Everybody has a copy of the regulations. You should be able to read those. You could see what you need in those, and you should be able to get with vendors to be able to provide you budgets for those. Um, you know, and really, it, really, it comes down to that pre-planning um, that, that Gabby just referenced. And, um, you know, the amount of, pro like, whether large or small operators, the amount of projects that our companies work on where it's like, well, ugh, gosh, this just came out of nowhere. And I'm like, what? Like, how did this come out of nowhere? Um, I'm like, have you read the regulation? Um, and so, so it's not a surprise. But what happens is, is, you know, when you're planning, a lot of these are unconventional, really DJ-specific budgetary items that you need, right? It's not the same as what you're going to need in Texas. And it's new, right? Like operators are getting so much better about this. We are seeing massive progress um, as we work with our customers through the evolution of the regulations. Um, but really, if you don't plan for it proactively, don't just add one zero, don't just add two, probably add three zeros to whatever it is if you have to do it immediately and it's last minute and you know you have to do it. And operators are absolutely complying with the regulations, but it's just that when you look at stuff that used to be, okay, we need to do this sometimes to now being required almost all of the time, how do we get efficient with that, right? It's the vendor partnerships, it's how do we work out the economic contracts behind the scenes, but then how do we properly plan for it? So how do we procure better technology? How do we make sure we have quiet fleets? How do we look at if the grid will support it, electric rigs, um, things like that. So I think that really it's stuff that, um, stuff that used to be considered social license items are no longer social license items. These are your legal license. You cannot get your permit without doing these. I don't, you know, it's very rare that I hear someone say, oh, we're doing this in a social license space, and it's truly a social license space anymore with the way that the regulations are written. These are things that you have to do to obtain your permit and comply with the regulations. So do what this industry does best, which is plan and execute. I mean, this industry is so innovative. Put it in a Gantt chart and Lean Six Sigma that thing and figure out how you never bring an AFE forward where you don't budget for these things that are now required to operate and do business here. Um, but if you are doing it in a reactionary space, it's going to be exorbitantly more expensive. And speaking of costs, all three of you are business owners here at the C-suite. In this current economic environment, what has impacted your business the most from inflation pressures to supply chain issues? I know on the service side, that's especially been challenging. So just go down the line. Start with Heidi. Yeah, I'll just, um, I touched on it briefly, but you know, not only are we trying to recover from the destruction of rates through COVID, once you get that increase, now we're just turning around and spending it because of inflation and cost of fuel and labor and everything. So really, you know, when you're clawing your way back and you're seeing inflation that we're seeing right now, it really is challenging because when you go to an operator and they feel like they gave you a meaningful increase and you're like, well, great, that just tackles inflation. Now let's hit this whole pre-COVID thing. Now let's hit this whole $90 oil thing. It's a lot. And so, again, I think that we're navigating it really well with the partnerships. And I think, you know, what I've noticed is just being brutally honest with the realities on both sides has been, you know, it's a lot of awkward conversations, but we're getting there. Um, but for a vendor, it's still been really challenging. You know, we're not capitalizing on, you know, prices in the same capacity because we're still trying to rebuild. Um, from a manufacturing standpoint, when we were manufacturing before COVID, we made the decision to manufacture in Colorado to support, so to support Colorado jobs. We kept anywhere from 20 to 30 laborers, uh, or we were, Laborers in the field are about anywhere from 30 to 40, but at our manufacturing plant, we kept 20 to 30 trade jobs busy for two and a half years, and we made the decision to manufacture in Colorado, even though we knew it was going to be more expensive. And now, for us to start back up and manufacture, um, we're looking at a, easily a 30% premium to manufacture. Um, we spend a lot more than our competitors when it comes to manufacturing our patented product to make it be perfect for this basin here. So we're about 90, 95% utilized, um, and we are not able to meet all of the demand that our customers are asking for. So it is a great environment for us as a small business owner to want to invest here. Even looking at peak prices, we would still consider it, again, if we had the confidence and permits for not the, like just the next year or two years, we want confidence for the next decade, and then we're willing to go make that investment. Um, so I think that, you know, from a vendor standpoint, it's, it's 
it's challenging, but I think that there are still companies that really want to make that investment here and do it. Yeah. Andy, what about you? Yeah, I think steel, um, you know, it's going to be equipment, long lead times on equipment, sometimes lead times longer than, you know, uh, permitting fairways maybe. And then you've got uh, uh, labor as well, which I think is a challenge for everybody in every aspect of the operation. I think you could argue we need higher quality labor um, now because of all the new um, uh, things that we need to adhere to to make sure we're being responsible operators. So uh, that, that pool of people has shrunk. Trisha. I mean, obviously I'm a different business than, than these folks up here, but I work with um, these types of these companies and I can say that this is a, um, we're really at a like unprecedented, absolutely unprecedented, unique um, economic environment globally, but completely unprecedented economic and oil environment now. And so it's been really hard, I think, for a lot of people to understand it. And it's, it's easy to get comfortable with high oil prices. I think that's an ease. Um, but I can tell you as a small business, holy crap, COVID, when, if, you, if you can pull up oil, anybody connected to oil and gas um, and say, see how they did in the year of 2020, I do get really frustrated when people talk about you know, the high oil prices and all the profits people are making. Because if any of us were in oil and gas, I'd, most of us didn't make a dime. And we actually, frankly, we wrote out massive checks and we lost a lot of money um, in 2020, myself included. And it was a really rough year. Um, but I am third generation oil and gas and I am all in on this business and I will be for a very, very long time and will be a serial entrepreneur. But that being said, this is a, um, the inflation piece, the ability to get people, it's really huge. I mean, I would love to scale and grow my business, but the ability to add a bunch of people is kind of, it's pretty difficult right now. And I would also say that, I mean, that, also, that all compounds into the trajectory of sort of how we see this business is that if you think about, you know, the regulatory standpoint in this business, I think you could say easily, well, you know, regulators could say, well, well, maybe we shouldn't double down if, you know, oil prices are just going to drop again. And the reality is, you know, renewables are going to do that too. We're already seeing this on the renewable side. I mean, if you're in China right now and you have 70% of your grid is hydropower and you're not getting enough rain, you don't have power and you're shutting down cities left, right, and center. If you're in Europe, same, same thing. Part of the problems they're having in Europe with obviously excessive natural gas prices, not enough natural gas, is also that they don't, the renewables haven't, haven't panned out and they're not working, you know, around the clock clock completely all the time, especially wind and especially uh, or solar at night and especially hydro when they don't have enough rain. Um, so it's extremely complex and all this stuff has to be taken together to understand it. I mean, this business, even we're being impacted by high, you guys are all being impacted by high energy costs yourselves because diesel is a component and natural gas is a component. So all this really matters in terms of electricity costs and it's extremely important to pay attention to um, that all these things, energy and outside energy and economics impact every business and it's all interrelated. So just not something that we can take, uh, we can look at in a vacuum. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up European natural gas prices because every time I look at Dutch TTF, I almost fall off my chair. <laughs> like it's tenfold, just shy of tenfold what Henry Hub natural gas is trading for and I think that that tells the whole story. Uh, so I want to close out here by asking kind of one simple question to leave it on a positive note for everyone in the room uh, and ask our panelists, why are you bullish on the DJ Basin? And Trisha, we'll start with you. You know, I'm bullish on the DJ for the same reasons I mentioned in terms of like the, ge the known geology, right? The kn knowing how to drill it, the speed of drilling, the being able to drill a, spud a TD a well in a, in a few days. Um, and the efficiencies of that, and the technology gains, all the great things about this business, the folks that are in this basin and doing it, including the folks on this panel, do it extremely well. I'm very, very bullish on that. That, that excites me in terms of that. Um, but I need to see those permits, and I need to see the well completions, and I need to see operators being honest, uh, both from a public side and a private side, and folks pushing the envelope on that side. So I'm bullish on what the, the technological capacity of the DJ and of the US, from a Iraq perspective, very, very bullish on the industry a um, little less bullish on, on you know, trajectory prices, but that being said, I mean, so, a little softness in prices is, is very positive for inflation um, and for the employment side as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm very bullish on the future for the DJ. I, I really am. I think with the rock, the technology, the people, I think we can do it. I think at the end of the day, um, uh, investors, take another look. You know, hold, hold up that DJ prospect in the near term, the stuff that's ripe for development, that has permits. Hold that up next to that you know, prospect in Texas that's got a lot of subsurface risk and, and look at the returns we have here. Let's harvest what we have right in front of us and get these uh, production numbers back up. And then in the mid to long term, I am very confident we have great people in this industry, very, a lot of ingenuity. I think we can figure it out. I know the regulators want to work with us. We want to work with them. Let's get it solved. Let's navigate this 
And uh, in the mid to long term, uh, hopefully uh, Colorado can start uh, adding more volumes to the mix. Absolutely. Heidi? I think great points. Um, share all, all the points that you guys mentioned, especially on the investor side and the economics of the DJ. Um, I'm bullish on the DJ, and we're all in. And I mean, I think anyone that knows our company, I have so much faith in this state, and I believe too much in energy independence to not fully throw down here. So we're in it for the long haul. If, even if this is an area where we were to continue to see you know, decreased activity, which I agree with Andy, I don't think that's the case. It's, we will be the last one standing for our service. Um, we believe in this industry, we believe in this basin, and I look, at, uh, you know, I look at where California is and I look at where our country is, and we just have to do better. And what we do in Colorado now is going to set the entire tone for the country. And so just for everybody that's in this, in, in this room, you know, I think that COGA is great with bringing together um, this conference and we have lots of meaningful, meaningful discussions, but we just have to do better than other states have. And there are people that live here and there are people, you know, everyone that lives here, um, everyone that will hopefully come live here as we continue to ramp production. Um, it's, a, it's a great place to be and we have an obligation to help bring energy to people. And so I think that we can do it here uh, clean. I think we can do it socially responsibly. Um, and so we're, we're all in on the DJ and we're willing to, you know, to throw down in a massive capacity to stay here. So I look forward to, to seeing this space and get back to where it was as we operate under the new regulatory environment. Wonderful. Well, thank you to all of you for joining us today. And thank you to our panelists for your insightful comments and your honesty. I think it's refreshing. I'll speak for myself and hopefully the audience to come to a conference and get some real dialogue and have people not be afraid to, to give their real view. So thank you to all three of you.